Hello and welcome to Tea and Heresy. This is a podcast on history, magic, the occult, spirituality, literature, art, and the occasional socio-political rant. My name is Cassie. I hold a Bachelor of Arts and Honours degree in history, and I'm so grateful that you are sharing your presence with me today. I invite you to make yourself a cup of tea or coffee, or stop in somewhere for a takeaway as we're about to dive into some juicy discussions. So on today's episode, I wanted to dive further deeper into the idea of history, the importance of it, what is it, and why I love it so much. I was just recently on a podcast, which may or may not be out um, by the time that this episode's released, more than likely isn't, but we were discussing my life and my journey with history from studying it at school and then in uni and then what I tried to relay in a lot of my posts and ideas that I put forth. And also, I guess it was somewhat triggered by a lot of comments that I've received over the many years of having this as my passion. Uh, firstly, of you know, why, why study history? It's already happened. It's in the past. Like, why, why study it? It's dead. It's gone. Also, what is the real truth? And said in a way that kind of discredits the information that you've put forth and reinforces their own I guess, confirmation bias and, I guess, holes within their own knowledge and research and theories. And I guess because there is a misconception around history and the study of it and why people do it and what's actually involved within it. And I want to touch on as well the idea of self, I guess, self-study and tertiary studies The reason why I want to touch on that is, again, brought forth by some previous podcasts that I've listened to and, again, by comments that I've seen online. Pretty much anything that I talk on here has been triggered by something that I've listened to or I've seen. And because that takes, yeah, it triggers me into this passion and response. And I guess it's best fueled to be put across in this format than in comment sections. I'm learning. And... It's the idea that the institution of university is this, this some evil cabal that are indoctrinating people a certain way and kind of cutting them into a certain mould. And to a degree, I understand and agree with that view. But also, it's what I, what I said to someone recently was, so say with psychology, You see a lot of intimacy coaches and wellness coaches and life coaches that a lot of the time are self-taught and they discredit those that have gone through the tertiary studies, um, have learnt psychology, have practiced psychology, have learnt the skills that you're taught in psychology, yet, and they, they put an emphasis on, I can just read all that, you know? Just learn it on YouTube and do these little mini courses. All of those sources, more often than not, I can't say for all, but they have been written and have been hosted by people that have studied and people that have got these degrees. They've done their master's, they've done their doctorate. 
So what's the difference in you learning those things in the system as opposed to listening to those that have been a part of the system? Is it, I understand as well that going to university is a very, is very much a privilege. 100% understand and respect that. The reasoning for not entering those systems that I've seen hasn't been attributed to uh, them not being in the place to be able to go to university. It's, it, it can kind of marry in with this idea of more often than not the white people and westernization of not wanting to put in the time and effort to learn and study something. And that can be extended into esoteric circles, just learning modalities as a whole. They want a weekend course and come out of it a master. Yet that is, I find, quite disrespectful to the lineages and the people before you that have done it. And also that you can't know everything that you can't know all there is to learn or know within the weekend of learning that course yet they come out with a qualification being able to guide other people through all this stuff without not only studying it extensively but putting it into practice embodying it finding out how they feel about it molding it into like having that beautiful combination and mixture of learning this knowledge seeing how it feels in the body feeling into what other ideas are coming forth from your different ways of approaching this topic and then teaching those things and I find with doing that comes a lot of the regurgitation that you see and for me I can feel into kind of what is just you can just sense it of what's regurgitated information and what is someone's original idea or even just a new way of saying something. You're like, oh, that's amazing. I did not think of it that way. And what I find is that it's you get those different ways of explaining things from someone that really, truly knows what it is that they're talking about. Unless they just have that skill in general across multiple disciplines. Um which I guess will go lead me into uh, history and its importance. So the study of history, what is it? It's not just knowing dates, times and facts. How people that study history are taught to approach sources, because it's a lot of tertiary studies is learning the tools. Instead of knowing the thing, it's learning the tools and especially with history, you'll learn the one, the different approaches there are to history. So the different lenses you can put onto view, the same source material, you can get out multiple different pieces of information just by putting on a different lens. So there's, that's, I guess, skill number one. Skill number two, in no particular order, is viewing the source material. So viewing the source material and then extracting, okay, who is the author of this? Historians are taught to look at the author, look at their bias, look at the agenda that they're coming from and knowing the holes within it, the lack of knowledge within it, depending on the time and and place, because you know that, you know, this person's coming from this perspective and 20 years down the time, there's this new revelation that comes forth that, um, either confirms or denies or 
looks at it at a different angle depending on you know the time place and space and topic you're looking at so you're looking at the historian or the person that's writing the piece of information very well aware of their biases and where they're coming from and the reason why a lot of historians are able to do that is because of the extensive research they have done in order to bring context into the situation and I think that is one of the main tools that I've personally received from learning history is context. Being able to put things into context, bring context into things and remind people of, okay, but how was this said? Because history can show how it's a common thing that you see of people extracting segments from texts and completely putting it out of context because it can be viewed out of context with the extraction that they've chosen. But when you put it in context, you're like, oh, that, is, that completely changes how I view that phrase or quote or whatever it is. And I think the beauty of history as well is also that it's like the, the many people think that historians are trying to hide things when it's the complete opposite. They're constantly trying to unravel and piece together. They're like the the grand masters of putting together the jigsaw piece of humanity and it's constantly evolving you're constantly trying to put in a a, a jigsaw piece in place and you're like okay I'm just going to place this there for the moment because it looks kind of right based on you know process of elimination and looking and common sense of the shape of the holes and the little legs and the color of it but I need the other pieces around it and so they're like, I'm just going to place it here because it's probably going to be around there until I can find the matching pieces to put it all together. Sometimes you might need to reshift it and change it. Sometimes it's a little bit further up, to the side, down, whatever it is. And we know, I'm placing myself into the we, but those that have studied history and have, taught, have been taught these tools in order to approach historical data is knowing that History is constantly changing. It's constantly changing because new evidence is coming to the surface. But you first have the hypothesis and then you try to find the things in order to prove that hypothesis. And, so, and a lot of the time it can be, it's in a form, I guess, of confirmation bias, but it's, you're trying to confirm it. However, we're also taught the skill of showing those that are uh, having adversity to it or challenging those beliefs. So within even essays and or even historical books that you can read is, this is my opinion. These are the other historians and evidence that I've gathered that confirms this. And on the other hand, we also acknowledge our limitations and these are some other different approaches to looking at this evidence. But through X, Y, and Z, this is what I'm personally deducing from it. And this is my conclusion. And it's looking at all the other different people's approaches to one topic in general. And feeling into, even just using your own intuition or just brain <laughs> and research of what you feel that to be. But what I find is lacking within a lot of um, spaces online is 
I, as I said earlier, I think it's just the misinterpretation of what history is and historians are doing because, as I say, they're constantly uncovering and trying to uncover and piece together this jigsaw. They're being of service to us as opposed to trying to hide things, as opposed to other systems that are trying to hide evidence, um, trying to hide artifacts, all of that. But at the same time, the harder you look, or the more you look even, not even harder, the more you look, the more you'll find. And that you'll find that it's not hidden, it's it's there. You just need to look for it. For the most part, I can't put that to everything because I know that there is uh, classified information out there. Um, but yeah, as I was saying before, you have a hypothesis and you try to um, prove and also the scientific action of falsification of trying to disprove that even and if it can or cannot be disproven what you're then left with and acknowledging all the factors but what I find online when people are trying to say this is the history is they just have the hypothesis without evidence attached to it apart from their own UPG which is unverified personal gnosis the unverified personal knowing um, through either I channeled this, I downloaded this, I got this from someone else who really has no grounding in putting forth that information because either they've channeled it or downloaded it. Um, and that's where it comes into, well, that could be the truth. That could be it. But at the same time, I guess historians as well, for the most part, don't speak in absolutes because we know that it's changing. We know specific dates um, and events that took place due to the evidence that we have and the data we have and the sources. However, the motives behind it, what else was there, what else was influencing it is open to interpretation and is, can be subjective and is open for it to be changing because of the evolution of data that is revealed. And also that a lot has been destroyed, definitely. But that shouldn't be the go-to answer for not knowing something is, well, well, you know, a lot has been destroyed. So I'm going to keep running with this idea um, because it's backed up by, you know, the idea that it could just be lost. And I think that is kind of a Christian idea as well, or just the dogmatic religious idea, just a bit of a tangent, um, that anything that they don't know is just God. Anything evil, it's, it's Satan. Anything that, yeah, is mainly anything that you don't know, the reasoning behind, it's just God. And so I find a lot of the time, it's like a lazy mechanism that kind of comes in, like a lazy mind of anything that you don't know or that you cannot prove to a certain degree is put down to, oh, well, everything has been destroyed by the great floods or the burning of the Alexandria library, which I'm still mad about, but is, yeah, it's just their excuse. Um, when faced with facts or information, may not say facts, information that is presented that is contrary to their idea and belief. Um, this for the most part, I'll use the example of Egypt and Tantra. So, I'm also open to this being incorrect due to my lack of knowledge and holes in my knowledge as well. And so anyone that knows differently and can provide evidence 
to back themselves up with it. I am so open to hearing. Currently, through what I've looked into, researched, talked to people that are more uh, experienced and well-versed in these topics, is Tantra came around in 500, in the year, around in the years 500, uh, in the common era, as a result of, or in response to, the renunciates of um, of India and Tibet, of people that the the yogic movement and philosophical movement that is in order to achieve enlightenment, in order to be the spiritually woke person, you have to renounce everything material, especially everything that, um, and that comes into renouncing your clothes, <laughs> renouncing sex, renouncing your home, renouncing food, renouncing and getting rid of all these elements to be spiritual. And Tantra then came forth and was like, mm, no, no. We disagree. We disagree with that. We feel that you can be spiritual with all these things. And actually, spirit can be found in all of these things. And it's very much my belief that we're on this world to find pleasure and to experience all of the senses and have all of these sensory experiences. So why is that a bad thing? And why do we have to get rid of it when it's all around us? Um, And so that in terms of the idea of Tantra... And the reason why it's coming from the 500s and like that um, evidence is currently placing it at that time is due to the extensive records that have been kept and very well kept and stored and preserved and that it's a very like Hinduism as a whole and and the culture around it have been some of the best people to preserve their traditions and it goes very 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 far back that's not to say that a lot was burnt or destroyed through especially I just put everything back down to Christianity that's my own bias um through burnings and um destruction of it through her you know um it being seen as a it being seen as a heresy and then even from Islam doing similar things to um, Hinduism and is still continuing to do it to Hindu and Tantric um, resources and memory and uh, culture and traditions. But for the most part, it has been very well preserved. And there have been a lot of people studying this time and place and resources, especially and more over the past couple hundred years and there hasn't been links to tantra in um in egypt a lot of the time that what people are talking about is non-dualism and so that's why i find it's important because it's like saying the egyptian christians or egyptian christianity it's like well no because christianity wasn't in egypt at the time period that they're looking to egypt right because Christianity is from Christ, which is Jesus, which is placed around, you know, 30, like the first century to 30 AD. Um, And so when the time period that they're looking at in Egypt is a couple thousand BCE, you're like, well, that doesn't really add up, like bringing logic into it. So, and it's the same with Tantra of, well, Tantra didn't come, it's a, it's a belief system and it's a structure 
these practices that were thousand years old in within Hinduism, which predates a lot of Egyptian um, Coptic and uh, traditions, is more like those practices were within Tantra, but Tantra as a philosophy and a framework and a system from what we currently know didn't come around until the 500s. So what's within that practice and what's the basis of it? It's non-dualism. And that for the most part extends across multiple different cultures and religions and traditions that wasn't just isolated to Tantra and Egypt to make it seem all cool and mystical and, and special. Sorry. Um, it was just, a, I, I feel, a, just a pagan belief from what we've seen from pagan traditions and their outlook on the world was very non-dualistic because they had both, you can put in, you know, uh, stripping away the patriarchal idea, they had both the feminine masculine energies. They were with the earth and they could see the um, the connections and the cycles of the earth and this um, the connection between ourselves and our cycles and our seasons and everything to the earth and so I find that's just a natural idea and Egypt wasn't the only fertility culture every culture had their own fertility goddess and deity and cults within them so it wasn't exclusive to Egypt they aren't special in the regards to being a fertility culture and having deities that worshipped um, the the fertility and worshipped goddesses in the sense of uh, having these deities that are very much in their sexual expression and empowerment and ways of using these ideas to transcend and become spiritual, more spiritually inclined. That extends through many cultures and traditions. So why is it that people are hyper fixating on Egypt? Like what is the fascination with Egypt? Is it because a lot of non-historians are placing this romanticized rose-colored lens view of Egypt and the mysticism around, well, how did that happen? All the mysteries that are there that have been debunked and have been have had logic brought to it and engineers that are constantly looking at how the pyramids have been built because it is it's a marvel and that's the thing like it's a marvel it's extraordinary I feel humans have made them um, extraordinary that humans have been capable of building not only the the pyramids but any structure any structure that has been built in like you know cathedrals the um, castles even like fuck why aren't people talking about the constructions of castles like that's insane the the magnitude of the the splendor that a lot of these castles have or did have because we can see the ruins that have lasted the test of time but we can imagine them in all of their glory holy moly they're, they're incredible buildings and then with the Aztecs and Incas, especially the Incas with Machu Picchu, of on top of this mountain range that is very susceptible to a lot of earth movement and a lot of harsh weather. Firstly, which baffles me because I haven't looked into the actual mechanics of it, but was able to bring water up 
the mountain, defying gravity, they had water systems pumping the water up the mountain in like little pipe and gutter lines and then being able to build the structures they did without concrete. It was just by stones in regards to they had the big stones and then they used the little stones in between to hold the structure, which makes sense to be able to hold the movement and and have it as a flexible yet sturdy uh, structure. And then the Colosseum and then in Rome and the, the tools that they've used in order to build these mammoth structures and outlive a lot of the early, uh, modern structures, right? And they've even been able to see that a lot of the Roman concrete self-heals, like it heals itself. Because modern times they say don't mix concrete with hot water, apparently. Don't mix concrete with hot water for whatever reason, I'm not too sure. Um, but the Romans with their particular um, minerals and substances that they used to create their own concrete, they used hot water with it. And then so what that's done is over time when there begins to, like when cracks begin to appear, when it rains, it kind of softens the concrete for it to then heal again. So then when it dries, it's a sturdy structure, which is insane. It's amazing. And that's what I find history has been such a tool for is seeing how freaking extraordinary humans are and have been and that we are definitely not at the height of our evolution not by any means I don't think that everything we do it has been done before and we are building on the backs of our ancestors and their knowledge and their wisdom I find it's been very humbling and using philosophy as a way of um, self-help or just getting in the minds of these people that they had a lot of time. They had a lot of time and less distractions to be able to contemplate the world around them. And the wisdom that they have is so profound and incredible. You, just using the example of Marcus Aurelius from way back when and Socrates and Aristotle and Seneca and all some of the greatest philosophers of time, in my opinion, how ancient they are, yet their words are still so relevant today. And that's what I saw. I think it was today. Um, there's a book called, I'll link it in the show notes and I'll find it, but I'm pretty sure it was called What is History or The Purpose of History or Why Study It? Something like that. I had a little flick through and... Uh, what are they saying? They said that it's the interaction between past events to modern times. And that's, that's what we're kind of looking at is it's a, it's a constant play of looking at what was and what is and the interaction with that and how, and seeing where you can go. So how is what I'm looking at reflective of now times? Where can I see it in this day and age? And you'll see a lot of reflection. Um, there is a thing of, you know, not, it's not really advisable to say history repeats itself because for the most part it does, in my opinion, but it's more of the reflection. 
kind of like with your own cycles. It's never exactly repeating itself because you think of repeating as happening the exact same way, the exact same time, in the exact same place, which isn't true. It, it, it's more a rhyme and more of a reflection. It's reflective of this previous time. This trigger's coming up, which is reflective of this past event that I had. And it's getting triggered in different ways. So you can kind of look at it in that way, right? Of the macrocosm, microcosm. And yeah, I think with studying it, it's so important to study it in multiple fields as well. Because without knowing where you've come from, you don't know the mistakes to avoid or what to do in case you do come across those mistakes or those uh, more more destructive events. So looking at science, you're naturally doing history. And in day-to-day life, you're naturally doing history. You learn from your past mistakes for the most part, (laughs) or you learn the tools and gain the skills in order to overcome those obstacles and challenges when you're faced with them next. And so that's why if you, if you don't know what, if you're going just through life quite oblivious to everything, then you're not going to know those things. You have to, it's that self-awareness and mindfulness practices even can help you to understand and the shadow work and childhood wounds and inner child stuff, right? That's being able to dissect how you are the way you are and learn the skills in order to understand yourself better and to change those patterns for for the better, right? That's what history does, but it's on a grander scale because it's not just looking at you and, and yourself. That's kind of more philosophy and tying in with psychology and everything. But on a larger scale, it's knowing the events that have taken place, the things that humans have gone through and have overcome, looking at how you can approach particular events and themes and all of that. And I find just solace in that personally. When we've gone through the pandemic, you're like, okay, well, let me look at previous pandemics and previous epidemics and previous plagues and outbreaks to see what they have done and what they used even, right? What they have used, um, you know, looking at herbal medicine, that's history when you're looking into those things. And so people are doing it without them realizing that they're doing it. Then they're doing it on a smaller scale than what historians are doing it, yet they're still doing it. Yet are quick to then clap back and throw shade at historians when they're doing the exact same thing historians are doing. Um, they're just looking at different things and not realizing the skills that historians can show them. Um, and that you can learn from, from doing like studies of it, not just knowing the facts and the details, but it's the interaction with sources. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, which is a nice circle, it's knowing it's so beneficial to know the facts and and things that have taken place. And the reason I say that is because, I find it's a way to deconstruct your conditioning as well. That's what I've found a personal benefit of history is, especially around religion. And there's still like I've still new things that are coming to my mind um, or coming into my field through listening to podcasts about different topics around 
what I just listened to then was around Gnosticism and early forms of Gnosticism, which was kind of like a sub branch of Christianity slash Judaism, and it was also a form of heresy. Um, so a lot of the texts have been destroyed, and it's what we do know of Gnosticism has been those critiquing Gnosticism, very much similar to the Vikings. And so you can gauge, you can piece that little jigsaw together. And with that, there were early sub-branches of Christianity that worshipped or saw idea of, what was it, the father, mother, son, and sister, or in the, the father, mother, son, Holy Ghost sort of thing, you know, father, son, Holy Ghost, but they incorporated the, the feminine into that. And then there was this idea from another sub-branch um, and sub-branch of like Christianity slash Gnosticism that um, had next to Jesus a sister that were the same in regards to they were both, I they understood them as like entities of instead of the actual figure of Jesus, if he did exist, um, of they were both five miles long or wide. And they were both the exact same, which you can see reflected within the Bible later on when they were trying to uh, form form the Bible by looking at all the different stories that were circulating because there were many, 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 many different stories about this particular event across hundreds of years that when it got to the 300s with the meeting at Nicaea with uh, Constantine um, making Christianity the religion and the accepted religion instead of uh, the paganism and the formation of the Bible by, okay, what stories are repeated the most? What stories are more chronological and reinforce the idea and the agenda that us as the Roman Catholic Church want to put forth? So a lot of stories were discarded within that process can be due to agenda, but also due to just them not having as many followers or retellings. And so the reason I got onto that was the idea of Adam and Eve. You get the first two, you know, in idea, in parentheses, the first two people. Um, so they did have that. And then even, you know, with, uh, with Lilith in there as well. And so by doing history, you can interact with these sources differently through the different knowledge that comes into your field. And you can just kind of be like, oh, life is honestly a joke. And and history is a joke. And the future's a joke. The present's a joke because it's all perception. Everything is a perspective. And we're constantly viewing things through different lenses. So you had the empirical view of history, which was just facts, dates, times, places, events, up until uh, the Victorian period of the 1800s. And then you started getting people looking at history differently. And that's when different approaches of history came into play. And you get um, intellectual history, you get emotion, uh, history of emotions, which is a new one. You get postmodernism, you get uh, political, you get feminist, you get so many different sub-branches of, of lenses of history that you can view sources through. And it was thanks to feminist history that we get the female perspective or the acknowledgement of women in history and the, and the uncovering of the feminine story and of feminine figures within history. So thanks, yeah, thanks to historians, 
females today can have more of an appreciation for history and our place within it. And it also gets you out of victimhood as well if you study it, which is a bit of shade here. But that might be the reason why people aren't wanting to look into it because they will get balanced. Because that's certainly what I, what happened to me. I certainly got rebalanced in my perspectives of where I am in the world and what has happened because we are fed this narrative. It's kind of a paradox of like, education and then you need to get more education to decondition your education what a whirlwind um we're fed this idea that women have always been a particular way and that well this is just a from what I was told and and my conditioning around that through educate through um my education is that women have always been a particular way. We've always been submissive submissive to the man. It's kind of like everything has always been the 1950s. But that is by far from the truth. You also need to take into consideration context of the place that you're looking at. You can't blanket statement everything from your Eurocentric perspective because every place was different and had different ideas of the women's role. You can look at the Viking women and the Norse women compared to uh, the Celtic Christian women. could be very, very different because they were governed differently until Christianity then kind of absorbed uh, the, the Norse and Germanic regions. And what I mean by that is the Christians up until um, Henry VIII of the 1500s weren't able to divorce that was through like Roman Catholic church. They weren't able to divorce. And so then he went and just changed the entire religion of England. So he could marry Anne Boleyn and divorce, um, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, but in the Germanic Norse regions, for the most part, again, depending on location, they could divorce and they weren't viewed as ruined spinsters. If they did get a divorce, um, that was very English, and because it went against God and the, it went against the natural order and you broke the vow, you broke your, you broke your word, right? Um, and then you get so many female warriors and female rulers and people that just went against the grain and led uprisings and led armies and have been some of the most revered people within history. Yet through Christianization and through the Christian do- uh govern the government of Christianity uh, which for the most part was around the Victorian era that they tried to change a lot of the history because women were reading literacy rates were increasing uh, women were reading and a lot of things were getting um, translated into more of the vernacular as opposed to just being kept in Latin, which was the elite's language and the educated language. So it was written, more people were reading more materials. And a lot of the time people were looking to the medieval period because that was somewhat more recent. And so they could change the narrative of the medieval period to very much suit their Christian dogma and idea of the household. And so they were literally rewriting rewriting particular uh, narratives and stories in order to 
influence those that were reading it in the contemporary times to be like, oh, this is how the people of the past acted, therefore this is how I must act. And to be accepted and to be a well-kept woman, this is how I must be. But when in modern times we are revisiting history and actually looking at the sources and looking at the sources that were then changed and all, all of that, right, is that that was very different from the Victorian lens of the medieval period. Um, it was very, yeah, less, it was very restrictive in many, from the modern lens, very restrictive, but also quite liberating at the same time. And yeah, I think it also taught me the skill of projection, funnily enough, because you're not allowed to place it's doing history a disservice by placing a modern lens onto historical events, by brandishing particular time periods, misogynistic and homophobic and this, that and the other, uh, because they didn't have those ideas at that time and they, or they didn't have the language for those things. So it is very new concepts for the most part as well. And so it's doing a disservice because you're not being able to fully understand and see the nuance and interpret differently and and see all the different angles a particular time period or event could take you or you could view it through because a lot of the time people are quick to brandish it a particular way and so how that can translate in my personal life is through that projection you can easily project your own ideals um, assumptions about people prejudice against people onto someone and that's all you see or that idea of meeting them where they're at. You can have that idea in the back of your head and it's quite natural, I think, to do that. But you're like, okay, this is the idea that I have about this person, but disprove me, (laughs) basically. Um, I'm open to being disproven. I'm open to being surprised. I'm open to having that idea completely shuttered because through history, that is a lot of the time what has happened is you come forth with an idea You come forth with your biases, you come forth with your assumptions and prejudices about a particular thing, and the more you look into it, the more you get to know the source material, the more you get to know that time period or those people that you're looking at, the more you get surprised about how wrong you might have been about these things that you're looking at, or how right you were. Um, So with that tangent aside, um, yeah, it's... Also, I guess going back to the beginning as well, the confirmation bias is people will use history to benefit themselves and their own view or to prove their own idea. But the moment that they're met with the challenging thought or a thought that disproves it or, um, yeah, doesn't, doesn't, I've got the word like echo chamber. It doesn't feed into their narrative. They're quick to just be like, oh, well, what's the truth anyway? Or that's, um, been manipulated or that's been this and that's been that which is like well yeah I understand that that's fair but there should be a a discussion of it could be this nothing's set in stone history also isn't set in stone I say for the most part because of just you know sources and events Um, it's how we interact with it and as a modern example it's like cool COVID did happen right that was a thing the legitimacy of what it actually was is open to interpretation 
and more evidence will come out and is coming out of what actually was the agenda, what was taking place, what was falsified, what was hidden, all of that, right? But the actual event itself, what kind of put everything on hold for a couple of years, that did happen on these dates of 2019 to, was still ongoing, but I'm going to say 2019 to 2021 or something, right? That happened. And those dates, it started and it's kind of open to and open-ended at the moment, but that is the dates it's going to be recorded as. Um, and then you can track of where, where it, the thought of it started as and where it then went and then the contributing factors to what led up to the events. That is how we can use history to interpret what has been currently happening. But we also know that it's not going to be until in future times that more evidence is revealed and our idea of what it was and what took place actually um, is a little bit more solidified, but again, open to people re-looking at it through the more information that's revealed, etc., etc. It's an, it's a never-ending loop. History is trying to reveal rather than conceal. That's other governing bodies. <laughs> History is of service to the general population and can be of great service to those wanting to put forth their opinion and their beliefs and using history to uncover what your beliefs are and and to be open to being disproven, to be open to seeing why you may place a romanticized view upon a particular time, place, and event and space, and why you don't have that same view to other traditions and um, places and cultures and beliefs. And also, when you may get triggered by the challenging beliefs, to feel into why you are getting challenged by that. Uh, why, why you feel triggered by that challenge and it can be because it is a belief it's a it's a belief that you've attached things to that's my projection of that you why because that has been my experience of when I get triggered by something and it's a it's set in a belief is because I've attached things to that belief when I haven't attached things to that belief I'm not as offended or angered or whatever other label you want to attach to that fiery emotion um and it is it's a it's a lesson of mine as well of of sharing more history of getting of getting my beliefs challenged again which again I'm I'm open to it's not nice to go through but I'm open to it um because for the most part as well like and because who I am I am wanting to expand my knowledge and know that the more I share these ideas and beliefs and and just my own knowledge about particular things that other people will have more knowledge than me in these in particular fields as well and I'm open to having that discussion and that's the thing as well is the discussion rather than an argument I'm open to debating but more in the civil conversational way as opposed to, no, you're wrong, you know nothing, you're just blinded by the system, you've just been moulded in this way, um, that's just what they want you to believe. And all, all of these projections that are presented onto me or pushed onto me, um, 
instead of, oh, that's a really interesting thought. I didn't think of it that way. This is where I'm getting my material from and this is what they've said, which corroborates with what these other people have said. And so that's where I'm getting my information from. Where are you getting your source material from and your information from? And then you can see, again, the legitimacy of it. And that goes into your idea of what a legitimate source is as well, because I know that some people online will have a different understanding or idea of that. Um, But yeah, it would do well for people to, I think, be open to what history is and how it benefits them and where they are naturally looking to history, because it's all around us. Yesterday's history, our childhood's history our ancestry's history and a lot of the time people in these spiritual groups are doing it but it's looking at where they will then place a judgment or the sources that they're valuing more than others and people's perspective and different people's perspectives over than um others um yes i feel like that concludes this episode Um, Let me know if you would like me to dissect things a little bit more and zoom in a little bit more on a particular area of what I've discussed Um, and if this landed well. And yeah, I will see you all in the next episode of Tea and Heresy.